Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. salt of the earth. Matthew. Bye-bye. I've got it. I have never, ever thought about what the chosen just depicted concerning Jesus and his teaching. Uh, it's not that I haven't thought about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be walking through that. But I never thought about fully how it got transcribed or if Jesus practiced his sermons. I sort of try to do some practice, right? 
In fact, last week when I read through Matthew 5 through 7, I was here the night before reading through it, so I didn't fumble over my words when I read through that manuscript of Jesus. That's an interesting depiction from the chosen concerning Jesus and how it got transcribed, but I don't necessarily know that that's how it happened. I do know this, that he was very thoughtful in how he articulated those words that began the Sermon on the Mount, and that he had a purposeful introduction to that which we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks. And when Jesus thought about how to start that sermon, he was heavy in thought, and he was deliberate with his words. And those words he knew would not just be words, for the people on that hillside 2,000 years ago, but that those words he was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount would be words that you and I would hear today. And so we step into this series that I've entitled The Good Life. The Good Life. And we're going to look at these teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. The Good Life is something you and I pursue every day, every week, whether we know it or not. Maybe we're just clocking time, trying to sustain our existence, hoping that maybe some good things. But there is a vision of something set before us that we are pursuing a life that would be endearing and enriching, would be good. Question. How do you define the good life? And how do you define the good life that you've been clocking time for this last week? Well, Carrie, that's pretty simple. I think the good life would be a good life of ease, great financial resources, not too many challenging relationships, in fact, rich relationships. The good life. How would you define it? Now, I'm not going to make you take a note card and turn it over and turn it in. But as we walk through these weeks and what Jesus is teaching, I think you better come to grips with it. Because there's an awful lot of energy being poured into this pursuit of the good life that's before you in mind and thought. And all that time you're pouring into it, you ought to make sure that you're headed the right direction towards the right end. And Jesus, he takes the initiative to radically redefine what the good life is before the people of his day. If you were to just take uh, maybe a, a smattering, observing you know, reflection on commercials. You know, the Super Bowl's coming up in a couple weeks. And uh, one of the exciting things for Super Bowl people, especially for non-Super Bowl people, football people, are what? The commercials, right? And so we have bombardment of advertisement coming at us all the time that sort of speaks of this would be the good life for you. Why don't you invest some money and resources and time in pursuing that product, it's pulling us that direction. Or maybe it's 
a conversation you're having with a friend at work, and you're griping and you're complaining, maybe it's your workplace, maybe it's the drive time, maybe it's some other kinds of things, and in your back of your mind going, it would be really nice if that whole situation would change and be done away with and there would be something else. You see, we are pursuing the good life, whether we acknowledge it or not, every day, because we were called to pursue life itself in its fullness. One of my favorite scripture verses, maybe some of you remember me saying this often, is John 10.10, where Jesus says that the thief, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. You were born to live. You were not born to exist. You were born to live, but you were born to live a life that God created and intended for you to live. But the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, sometimes it's not blowing up your life. Sometimes it's just getting you off course a little bit. And you know what happens if you're off course a little bit? At the beginning, it doesn't seem to be very far away from where you need to go, but over the period of time or maybe years, you end up way over here pursuing stuff and involved in stuff that's nowhere close to the good life that God intended for you to have and for which he created you. So would you do your homework and just ask some honest questions among yourself, maybe in your life group or somewhere else or with a friend over lunch? What are you really pursuing? What is the good life and how do we define it? I see a lot of struggle in our culture today of what people think needs to be the good life. And it's not new to our generation by any means, but there's an intensity, especially in a Western uh, materialistic culture, that gets people off on a wrong trajectory. And we're here today to hear fresh the words of Jesus as he stood before a mass of people and he spoke to them about what the good life really is. So with that, I want us to pray real quick and we're going to look at God's word. Jesus, here this morning, we need your voice to speak to our inner being. Whether this is our first time in this church or we've been here many, many years, I pray, Jesus, that you would speak in an audible way through the power of your spirit in a manner that is uplifting and encouraging. And Lord, if it's tough love and convicting, then so be it. But you lead us to deeper streams of life because the things that are being pursued even in this very room here this past week, are not healthy for many people. But you have set before us your kingdom and your goodness, and may we pursue that which you are calling us to here in this hour, in this year, as surely as you did when you walked on this earth. Amen. You got your Bibles? For us to step in to an understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, we have to get some context going. And the context for the Sermon on the Mount is going to be found before we step into Matthew 5 through 7. And so if you open your scriptures, you will find these words by Jesus in chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, so he's at the beginning of his ministry, he withdrew to Galilee. 
Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, who spoke, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. So it's taking an Old Testament prophecy, it's putting it in context in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ and what he was doing walking on the earth at that time. And then verse 17 of Matthew 4 says this, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. And what did he preach? It's summed up in one sentence. He began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So he's walking this earth. 2,000 years ago, God come in the flesh through the Son, Jesus Christ. It's time for him to begin his ministry. He's been a carpenter's son in Nazareth, and now he steps out for his uh, grand opening, right? The premiere of the Messiah, right? We know that. We look back. They didn't know it. He was just like, who's this person from Nazareth? What's this guy saying? Who does he think he is? By what authority does he try to preach to us? So a lot of confusion goes on, but he steps in and he's really clear. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God refers to the reign of God. We'll get and unpack that a little bit more over the weeks. But he is asking them to do something. Not to go, oh, woe is me, man, I repent. No, repent means change turn. Your direction is off course. Repent and know that the kingdom of God is at hand, and the kingdom of God was at hand in the kingship of Jesus. So here he begins to preach. He's walking around. People are following him. And then we find these words as we move on. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Plan A. At once they left their nets and they followed him. So what you have before you is not just a beautiful, scenic view. Do any of you know what this view is? This is the Sea of Galilee. This is where our Lord and Savior physically walked. Do you know what part of the Sea of Galilee this is? If you've been there before, I've been there a couple, three times, looking to go back this year, and I'm like, okay, I remember being there. I remember some of those sight lines. The sight lines of those hills are on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. This here is on the northern part. This here is on what is believed would be some of the area that Jesus could have preached the sermon we're going to look at. 
And he was walking around and he was picking people. I'll pick you, man. I'll pick you. Come follow me. Come follow me. And so we, here we have Simon, Peter, and Andrew. And it's real. This isn't make-believe. This isn't legend. This isn't some old history book. This was real. Jesus, God, has come in the flesh along the Sea of Galilee, calling people to follow him. And then it says this in verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two others, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in the boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately left the boat and their father, and they followed him. I don't know about you. I just get excited about real time. And when I've been at the Sea of Galilee, and I know when I'm able to step back in and see it this next year, that I'm going to be like, wow, this isn't some like, okay, we think, they, no, Jesus was here, and this was his turf of ministry when he started. Then it says this in verse 23. Again, this is all context for understanding what he's doing when he steps into preaching the Sermon on the Mount. It says this. Large crowds from Galilee. He went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues. And he ended up preaching to large crowds from Galilee and Decapolis, Jerusalem and Judea and the region across the Jordan following him. I think maybe my slides might have been messed up here. News about him spread all over Syria. I'm just going to read it straight out of my text. Now, if you can find it, Brandon, that's great. Verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee... The Decapolis, which was a group of about 10 cities that were east of the Jordan. Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan, they all followed him. Now, it's important to know this because of how it steps into the Sermon on the Mount. There was a mass of crowds that were following him. And these crowds he began to have deep compassion on. They were sheep without a shepherd, as it says elsewhere in Scripture. And there's this compassion that breaks upon him as he has this premiere, this debut of his ministry, that I'm sure was overwhelming. And so then when we step into chapter 5, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, we know his disciples as those that he sort of picked, the 12, if you will, the apostles. And sometimes there's confusion. Was this a private gathering, or was this a larger mass gathering? Friends, this was a larger mass gathering. 
When he saw the crowds, he began to teach his disciples. But then if you go to the next verse after the Sermon on the Mount, it simply says that Jesus came down from the mountainside and large crowds followed him. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 is also reflected in Luke, in Luke chapter 6. And so sometimes it's confused as to, was he preaching of people on a mountainside? Or, as it says in Luke, it was the Sermon on the Plain. Mountains in Israel aren't like the mountains we see here in Southern California when we walk out and we look up at uh, the high snow peak things. Mountains there were sort of like mounds. In fact, someone says this wasn't the Sermon on the Mount. It was the Sermon on the Mound. And so, as you see depicted here along the north side of the Sea of Galilee, there were hillsides that went up and they would come down to the edge of the water. And if you preached at the bottom edge of that water, your voice would be amplified because of the water to the crowd. And so he had no amp system. He had no headphone set like I have on today. Jesus stepped in and he began to preach to this crowd of people that his heart had become broken for. He had been healing the sick. He had been casting out demons. He had been setting people free. And they were attracted to the work of what Jesus was doing. It was sort of the catalytic response to bring people around him. But now he needed to teach them. This wasn't just sort of show, show, show. It needed to be a show and tell kind of moment. And so he's going to do something that's going to alter their life forever. He's going to change their sight line. Sight line altercation. You know what it is? Some of you did it this morning. You walked in, you sat behind somebody, and you were trying to see some words. Maybe you're trying to see the person leading up front, and you did what? You changed your sight line. When you build auditoriums, they talk about sight lines. This is not a, a, a big auditorium. It doesn't have a raked floor, but there's all kinds of science that goes into sight lines so people can see clearly. And what happened in the Sermon on the Mount was he changed their sight line. He tried to adjust them to say, good life isn't here, good life is here. And so when you come to grips with what you're pursuing for your good life, you need to measure it back according to what God's Word says. But some of us, we need a major sight line adjustment. And it's almost like you need to get up every morning, <clears throat> like you try to get your back going, some other kind of exercise. Maybe you go work out, right? You need to adjust your sight line every morning that you go to work. Every morning that you step into those domestic responsibilities, every morning that you go to class, whatever it may be, you have to make sightline adjustments, and Jesus is about to change their sightline. And he does this with an incredible, memorable, poetic almost, introduction. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're called the Beatitudes. It comes from a Latin word, and, and it has to give reference to this whole idea of blessedness. The Psalms have a, a lot of that kind of blessedness in them. 
And Jesus steps before them and he uses this word blessed. Now, in some Bible translations, they use the word happy. I don't like that translation. Happy has to do with emotions. Blessed has to do with a disposition and a place of blessing, of goodness. It's hard for us to interpret what the meaning of that word is, but I would not lean towards happy. The word blessed, blessedness, is rich, and it's what he intended. There needed to be depth in this. And he looked at them and he said, Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the big altercation in understanding the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you've read it a certain way. The question is this. Are the Beatitudes prescriptive or descriptive? Are the Beatitudes instructions or are they merely explanations? The reality is this. Jesus intended for these blessings to be instructive in the sense of his kingdom, but they were not to be a how-do list to be happy. He was looking at masses and crowds of people. This last week um, uh, was Levi's birthday. My son Levi, who's turned 24, and... Uh, we all went to Universal Studios, and we were at Universal Studios and going around to some different rides, and uh, uh, Nintendo World was opening up, and because his oldest brother has uh, special passes working at Universal uh, Studios, we were able to go see the Nintendo World before it actually made its big debut. But as we were working our way around Universal Studios Park, some of you are mindful of this, um, there is the big water world performance of all the stunt people. And uh, this goes off a movie from a number of years ago, but I mean, they got stunt people flying from one place to another. They got people falling and jet skis coming out, people getting sprayed and, and with water and everything. Uh, it's really sort of a, a very uh, a sobering moment because I, we were there when actually one of the stunt people that was on the news this week, uh, he was having his cape on fire and he fell from a three-story thing into the water uh, as part of the act, but he never came up out of the water. And he was harmed, and they stopped the whole show. And prayers that he gets better, but they had to dra drag him and resuscitate him, and it just was a very, very scary moment. But they stopped the show, and people were escorted out. But when we were there and walking in, trying to decide where to sit, and we actually walked all the way around this huge amphitheater, and we actually sat over by where this uh, gentleman had fallen and, and got himself harmed, I looked into the eyes of the masses of the people that were there. And I thought to myself, I wonder if this is what Jesus did when he looked into the masses of the multitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, and there were all kinds of people 
imagine from Southern California we're part of, it's very mixed, right? All kinds of people, different nations and backgrounds, ethnicities, people, uh, different socioeconomic levels, young, old, and it was a crowd smattered with all kinds of people. Being a preacher, knowing what was going to happen, there was part of me that says, give me a microphone. Let me preach to you about the good life. <laughs> what Jesus was doing was not looking into the eyes of needy people and giving them a big how-to list for happiness. He was describing who they were. So the Beatitudes are not prescriptive for a blessed life. He was being descriptive and explaining to them that they have the ability to have the good life that he came to bring. You see, in the Beatitudes, Jesus, he inverts who is well off and who is not well off. Who's well off are those who can be a part of God's kingdom. Those who maybe think they're well off, and maybe they are well off in this life, they're pursuing man's kingdom. But he sort of does this flip, and he inverts them and says, you need to alter your sightings. You need to change the trajectory of where you're looking, because your blessedness, your good life, is not found in man's kingdom of this earth. Your blessedness is found in participating in the kingdom of God and allowing His rule and reign to dominate in every area of your life. Simply put, blessedness is found by living inside the kingdom of God, no matter what our circumstances. And He's going to go through a list of those circumstances. The good life is available <laughs> to all people available to you, to you, to you, to those in the back here, those over here, and you over here. It's, it's available to all people. So he's standing before them down on this hillside, Sea of Galilee is back, and he's looking into the eyes of weary, worn-down people people that were looking for some hope in their life, people that really didn't make the cut, people that were probably discarded by large segments of society, especially people that were of the elite religious culture. They wouldn't look into this crowd and think that they were blessed. But Jesus did. He looked into their eyes and he simply said, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs, for yours, yours, you get it, is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit can be described many ways. Sometimes people plan to translate this as people that are just poverty stricken. Well, it could be poverty stricken as it relates to material means in life. But it says poor in spirit in the Matthew version. What does it mean, poor in spirit? So maybe they're trying to articulate exactly what Jesus was getting at. It means these people are spiritually bankrupt. They're spiritually bankrupt. Whether they've lived a life of sin or they're nomads or they're the discarded, these people don't have anything going for them spiritually. Would you find yourself in that category this morning? 
And then he says, you are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for guess what? Yours could be the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now again, a lot of times, the interpretation of Beatitudes taken is like, okay, I've got to learn to be poor in spirit. How do I be poor in spirit? Contrary, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm humble. Oh, then I'm blessed. I mourn, mourn. So I'm, I'm going to mourn. I'm, I'm going to be sympathetic. I'm going to mourn. And then I'm going to be comforted. These are not how-tos. Going to, uh, to Nintendo World with my, uh, Melissa and I, with our three oldest boys was quite interesting because they all grew up playing Mario Kart. You know what Mario Kart is? Yeah, some of you played it. Some of you are too old. Some of you don't care about video games. But this was a pretty big deal to walk in a Nintendo world. And you could get, you know, ways to get tokens. And, and you could, uh, you know, accomplish certain things. Ding, ding. If you've done Mario Kart, you're like, you're ding, ding, ding. I'm getting all these tokens, right? <laughs> well, I tell you what. The Beatitudes are not about getting a bunch of tokens to please God and be happy. Oh, I got that one. I'm poor in spirit. Oh, I got that one. Uh, I, I'm uh, someone who mourns, right? What's the next one? Oh, the meek. Yeah, uh, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Ding, got that one too. No, these are descriptive. And so when it says blessed are the poor in spirit, he's looking into the eyes of those who are spiritually bankrupt or don't have anything going for them. And he says, let me tell you this. You can have the good life because the good life is found in the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. What kind of statement's that? Who is blessed when they're mourned? When we're talking about deep grief here, you've lost a loved one. How is that blessed? Well, it's blessed because in the kingdom of God, you can be comforted by the presence of God when you can't even say words concerning the depth of your grief and what's happening. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted when your sight alignment is on the kingdom of God. And blessed are the meek. What does it mean, the meek? Uh, Dallas Willard references that the meek are sort of like shyness. You know, people that don't go after things in life. You know, some of you horsepower up and you can go get things. But he says, you know, those who are a little timid and those who are meek, I see it. I see it in your eyes. Some of you, I've watched you. You, you followed me around the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> blessed are the meek that are in the crowd. Because the meek that are in the crowd, you need to know this. You will inherit the earth. You may have some great entrepreneurs that have companies that have been built over the years and they got millions and billions of dollars and all kinds of houses and, and vehicles and they got what they think is the great life, but you need to know. Blessed are the meek because you will inherit the earth. And blessed, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they, they will be filled. This has to do for a longing for justice. I want things to be right. Some of you built that way. I, I want things to be right or that was just wrong. And it's like, wait a second, when you're in that place of injustice being done to you or there's no righteousness that's happening around you and you hunger and you long for things to be different, Jesus speaks into your life and says, you will be filled, you will be filled with my presence. You will be filled with the fullness and the hope of God. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, not, dang, it's a token I need to get. No, some of you are in that place right now. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The individuals who care in the hidden places, you're caring and taking care of people, and sometimes you're wondering, does anybody care about me? You will be shown mercy in the kingdom of God. If you're a merciful person, do not become discouraged in well-doing. The Lord sees everything that's done in secret, and he will reward, and he will bring you mercy and give you comfort so you continue on in doing well. Blessed are the pure in heart. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to describe what maybe pure in heart is, but Maybe a good word to sort of jolt our thinking is the word perfectionist. Pure, you want to see things done right. Things happen here in a certain kind of measure. And we live in a world where perfection doesn't happen all that often, but you have a desire to see things done right. You have a pure in heart. You're intense, right? You want it to see done well. You want it to be seen done for the right reasons. And Jesus knows your heart and how you're wired. He created you. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, whose intent is right. You, if you alter your sight lines, you will see God and experience him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Oh, stop fighting here. Let's get together here. Let's not, uh, come on. And you're working and you're laboring trying to make peace. Maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's with uh, a friend that's now sort of become an enemy. Maybe it's a work. You, You work really hard at just trying to be a peacemaker. That's sort of your identity in life. And you just wonder, does anybody notice this going anywhere? Should I just forget it? No, blessed are you if you're a peacemaker. You'll be called the children of God in his kingdom. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, wow, that's a heavy one. You know, this is where you come back to this whole thing. Are these things instructive or are they descriptive? Is is that, no, ding, that's not a token. Who wants to be persecuted? Hey, I'm going to work really hard at being persecuted, so I have the kingdom of heaven. No, it's descriptive. He's saying if you're persecuted because of righteousness sake, be encouraged because in the kingdom of God, it is yours, all that the kingdom of heaven has. And then he embellishes this particular beatitude a little bit. And he says, blessed are you when people insult you. Uh Uh-huh, been there. Persecute you, yep. Falsely say all kinds of evil against you, yep. Oh, because of me, yeah. Cross that line with your faith. And you're finding yourself under fire. I'm amazed what's happening in our culture with simple statements of faith that people are getting all bent out of shape about, that people say. There's persecution that's increasing. Not because, dang, I need to be persecuted more to get more favor with God. It's just this is the culture, this is the world in which I live. So he's standing and looking into the eyes of these people, and he knows that they've been persecuted. And those who have stepped down and started to believe in him, there's opposition against them. And then he says, rejoice and be glad. 
Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He was mindful of it all. So the Beatitudes change your sight line. He's describing the good life. Not a good life that you attain by works, but the good life that is part of the kingdom of God if you would choose to enter in and follow the king. The Beatitudes are not an entrance requirement to the kingdom. They are not ethical demands. They are not a list of people who God blesses. Uh, the vague promises for the future, not a moral code, not good advice, not a new legalism of Phariseeism. The Beatitudes, simply put, are good news. They are good news that the gospel is for all people. It's good news that the good life is available in the kingdom of God. What the Beatitudes are, they are an actual description of those whom God blesses. They are the kind of people to be congratulated. They are about the availability of the kingdom of God to everyone. In other words, they're not prescriptive. Prescriptive, they are descriptive. Now, it doesn't mean that all who mourn, all who are spiritually poor, have the kingdom of God. It's just as he looks into the eyes and the lives of people, and in your life and mine today, he acknowledges that if you find yourself in these places, then you are blessed. If you had to come up with a list of beatitudes today, what would they be? Blessed are those who have cancer. What? The Lord's presence in his kingdom will be with them. Blessed are those who lose their job. Because the kingdom's purpose overrides anything we do of temporal value in this earth. Blessed are those who don't make the cut. Because in my kingdom, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You see, it's a different way of looking at life. But Jesus, he begins the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount by altering their sight lines and saying, look here, it's in the kingdom of God that you will find your blessing and your strength. Read for you just a couple quotes here. And then we're done. These quotes are people who I have a great admiration for, who have studied deeply concerning the things of Jesus Christ. One recently went to be with the Lord, Dallas Willard, a book called The Great Conspiracy. He says this, the Beatitudes in particular are not teachings on how to be blessed. They are not instructions to do anything. They do not indicate conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for human beings. They are explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting of the present availability of the kingdom through personal relationship with Jesus. They single out cases that provide proof that in Him, in Christ, the rule of God from, heaven, from the heavens truly is available in life circumstances that are beyond hope. And N.T. Wright, English bishop, 
New Testament scholar, he says this, Jesus is not suggesting in the Beatitudes that they are simply timeless truths about the way the world is, about human behavior. He was saying that he is wrong. He is saying that he is wrong. Mourners often go uncomforted. The meek don't inherit the earth. Those who long for justice often don't take uh, that longing. They take that longing to the grave. This is an upside down world or perhaps a right way up world. And Jesus is saying that with his work, it's starting to come true. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Something is changing on the ground. This is an announcement, not a philosophical analysis of the world. It's about something that's starting to happen, not about the general truth of life. It is gospel, good news, not good advice. And he goes on to say, the life of heaven, the life of the realm where God is already king, is to become the life of this world transforming the present earth into a place of beauty and delight that God always intended. And those who follow Jesus are to begin to live by this rule here and now. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes in particular. They are a summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense in God's future, promised future. Because that future has arrived in the presence in the present, in Jesus of Nazareth, it may seem upside down, but we are called to believe with great daring that is, in fact, the right way up. Try it and see. Dallas Willard also says this, just pungently. So Jesus said, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, the deprived, the deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion, when the kingdom of heaven comes upon them. Sightline changes. Are you living in the kingdom of God? Or are you living in the kingdom of the world? Are you living the good life within the kingdom of God's reign? Or are you pursuing a good life as defined by the world? Is there a sightline adjustment that's needed in your life? What is the good life you have your eyes set on today? I invite the team to come up as we close. Open your heart to the things of Jesus and his kingdom. Repent and turn. The good life is found even in the midst of suffering when Jesus is the king in this life and wow, will you see it in the life to come. As they come, I want to close in prayer and invite you to just turn your hearts to the Lord. Maybe you want to pray at the altar and you need to just lay something down. Maybe you need to pray for someone that you're burdened about. There's also a place to gather over here in the prayer area to your right where someone can pray with you. I was thinking about my mom and dad this week. I don't know why for sure, but I thought, I wonder what they're experiencing this Sunday morning as their son, Carrie, steps up to try to preach the words of Jesus who they now see face to face. 
Because when they passed away, I knew exactly where they went. They went to be with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord for those who have sought the kingdom of God and they did with their life. They know what the good life is. Your loved ones that you know are in the presence of the Lord, they know what the good life is. It's not that this life was bad. God created this world for us to enjoy. He gave us the tangible things for enjoyment. But our hearts aren't to be set on the things of this world, but to be set set on the things of the kingdom. And I wish I could bring Norma Jean and Charles Bowman in through the door and say, could you just tell us a little bit about the good life that you're now experiencing on the other side? You've heard me say it before, one second on the other side of death will radically redefine everything about this life. Sadly, people go into their later years of life never ever turning their hearts to the kingdom of God. You have this day, you have this hour, you have this week. Pursue the kingdom of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, we ask that in your beautiful name that we would draw near to your presence for these beatitudes are summed up not as a doctrine, but they are summed up in you and your personhood. For you are the king, and it is your kingdom that we need to pursue. Lord, I pray indeed for blessings upon all kinds of people that are represented here in this room, as well as those watching online, that they would experience the blessing, even if they are in dire and difficult circumstances. Lord, may you show them your way and your encouragement. Give them your embrace. Speak your tender, soft words. May you empower them by your Holy Spirit to be bold and strong in the midst of difficulty. Whatever it may be, God, may you bless them as they live life in your kingdom. And Lord, if we are trying to find the good life outside of your kingdom, accumulating wealth, experiences, vacations, relationships, whatever it may be, Lord, may we pause to ask you through your Spirit to give us a sight line adjustment so that we can see clearly. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing upon your people. And for anyone who does not know you, Jesus, may they take that initiative to surrender their life to you this morning. Maybe pray with someone or ask someone. Maybe they're a doubter and a skeptic like we mentioned earlier today. Lord, may their questions get answered in some place where they can draw to you and receive you as the Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, may your blessings abide. And may we worship you in the beauty of who you are as our king and the kingdom that is now at hand, the kingdom that we will see in its fullness one day when you return or when we pass from this life to the next. May we keep our eyes set on you. Amen. The ushers are going to come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings as well as your connect cards, your prayer concerns. But let's worship the Lord again as we close. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grace. The heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory for you. To life. Of
that you will come back this evening at 5.30 for our chili cook-off. Please bring a great pot of chili. Even if you don't want to bring one, please come, be a part. Uh, and there are winners. In fact, I was just thinking about that. This was, uh, it was at the chili cook-off a year ago when Angela and Chris, their family first came and they showed up and she won. So there we go. So you can win. Um, but come tonight and we'll keep the annual meeting brief. Uh, I know there's football games on and all part of that. But uh, you'll get your appetite filled. I want to just send you out with a blessing. Be blessed because you are blessed in the kingdom of God with the life of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>